Okay, so we are in our uh, generosity teaching series. Real quick, turn to Philippians chapter 4. If you weren't with us last week or if you're newer to Anthem, I want to just take a moment and lay a little bit of groundwork for what this is, why we're doing it, what this is all about, why would we talk about generosity. And, and honestly, we kind of orient ourselves every fall around one of our core values of generosity, partly because it helps train us for Celebrate Generosity, where we meet together as a family of churches, three churches in different parts of the county coming together as one big family where we give away away 100% of the offering that comes in that day and the following week. Now, for context, just a little bit of like to set the picture, that is a day we encourage you guys and our other churches to give and give big. We do it unashamedly because we don't keep a penny of that. It goes into our different initiatives and ministries that we partner with, that we help support. And so it's a day where we get to really boldly uh, ask you and, and prepare you to budget, to fundraise, to save, to sacrifice, so you can give big, so we can bless church planning in Nepal, so we can bless foster care here in the county, so we can pour into other church plants that are coming down the road, as well as Zoe International. And so some very, very epic things we're excited about, and we get to make this really uh, blunt call for you guys to give a lot of money because we don't keep any of it. We get to send it out and bless other people. It is a very, very fun, fun day. Um, And so what we do to help prepare ourselves is just teach from the Bible on generosity, on money, on stewardship, all of these different things, both to help us prepare for Celebrate Generosity, but also quite frankly, as Americans in this time and place, we need to be reminded what the Bible has to say about money, generosity, this lifestyle that we're called to. And so last week I taught a bit uh, of kind of our foundational kind of tone setter for the next couple of weeks. So if you were not here last week, go listen to it. It's really important because what we did last week was teach on faith and generosity and how without faith, generosity is not only impossible, but it doesn't exist at all. And I shared this great quote from a pastor down the road who said, generosity is impossible apart from our love of God and of his people. But with such love, generosity is not only possible, but inevitable. I love that. I think I put it on your piece of paper even today. Like, that is such an amazing perspective shift. Without the love of God and the love for his people, generosity is impossible and non-existent in the way that the Bible talks about. But as we love and worship God and grow in that journey, and as we love his people that he's called us to be around, generosity is not only possible, but it will happen inevitably by living life together. So good. Um, here at Anthem, we, we teach generosity not as obligation uh, or guilt or shame. I don't know if you've had that experience with churches in the past or, or anything like that in the past. That's not the posture we, we come from it as. Uh, we don't do it to even pay for services or to help support an organization. I shared with you one of my pet peeves last week. Uh, you can go back and listen to that. But it's not paying for a service, paying for a worship service. It's not supporting an organization of those people. That's when we talk about generosity, that's not where we come from. We teach it as a gospel issue. Uh, And the reason we do that is because as we are brought into this new family, we are made, designed, and called to be like the one who saves us. And what we're going to find out today is the one who saves us is an incredibly giving and generous God. And he calls us to mimic himself. 
So to give you a little bit of a picture of why we feel like it's really important to press into this uh, as a family of churches, I have just a handful of stats to give us a little bit of framework and some context. So in 2011, which is when this survey was was taken, uh, and I got this from both um, uh, Barna Group and then the Washington Post. There's a couple of uh, uh, survey articles that are out there. And in 2011, professing Christians, okay, so people who claim to be Christians, gave 2.3% of their income to the church. For a little bit of perspective, in the 30s during the Great Depression, when arguably times were way worse than they are right now, Christians were giving about 3.3% of their income. So even more troubling is what they found in this survey of professing Christians and members of churches, so those totally bought in to their, to their home church, is that 33 to 50% of church members don't give a thing. So, that may be disturbing and troubling, uh, but even more so, generosity is not just about giving to a church, okay? So that's just kind of the church lens. Let's zoom out a little bit. Californians, on average, give 2.2% of their income to charitable incomes or charitable organizations. And so this is not just like religious institutions. It's not just Christian parachurch organizations. This is to anything, any nonprofit that can accept donations. And so in this category would be donating to political campaigns, donating to health, human-type services, and, and things around the county and the state, to churches, to parachurch organizations, to people who have no affiliation with the church and to churches themselves. 2.2% of the income of Californians go to something other than themselves. So by default, with our money, we as Americans... Californians and even Christians don't seem that generous. Now, before you kind of get say, wait, 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 wait a second, I just want to say I'm using kind of the big we, right? So as we look at America, Californians, Christians, I'm using the big we because one of the things I shared with you guys last week is that Anthem Church is an incredibly generous church. And so that's just the picture of the state of generosity in general as we look at the country, our state, and then where money tends to go. It's a little dark and depressing. But as we look at Anthem Church, you guys are an incredibly generous church. And so I shared some of this last week, but I want to share it with you again. And I'll use the you pretty liberally. So I'm using the we pretty liberally, like we as Americans, Californians, Christians, right? I'm also using the you pretty liberally. As some of you guys are newer to our story, I want to let you know the kind of church that you're a part of. And I want to let you know what Anthem is about. By God's grace, he's given us this heart of generosity from day one. It's been something that has been with us since the very beginning and honestly a muscle we need to regularly exercise as a church. On our very first birthday, seven years ago, an Anthem in Thousand Oaks was our first Celebrate Generosity. We are a church of about 150 people. Uh, and so just for context, that's roughly the size of our church, just so you know. So a church of about 150 people, uh, they gave approximately $25,000, which was five times more than the weekly offering that they, were, that they were bringing in at the time. We were totally blown away. As we look back here, story, it was like unthinkable that this small, brand new church who's barely supporting themselves could give away that much money outside the walls of our church to compassion, justice, and church planning initiatives outside of us. 
Now, since then, we've had a few more Celebrate Generosities. We're coming up on our seventh, and in the first six anniversaries of our church, the first six Celebrate Generosities, we've given over $350,000 out of our church to planting new churches locally, globally, to supporting pastors and planters in Nepal, to rescuing kids out of sex slavery and human trafficking in Thailand and L.A., to care for foster care kids and families here in the counties, to put in drinking wells in parts of Africa. We've given money all over the place. And so this is the kind of church who we are. This is the kind of church that you guys, as maybe newer to the story, are being brought into. We like giving money away liberally. We do it. We like it. We're generous. We have to train ourselves in this generosity. And honestly, this is not to toot our horn. It's by, it's by honestly his grace and for his glory. But I just want to give you a picture of the church we're part of. And as we talk about generosity, this is not me wagging a finger at you. Uh, this is me kind of applauding and saying, yes, let's keep doing it. Let's press on. It's me saying, hey, if you're new to our story, this is who we are as a family. We're crazy generous because as we look at the scriptures, we see that God is crazy generous with us. And we want to do whatever we can to be like him. And so this is one of the ways we mimic him. And so as we talk about generosity, we need to make sure we have some fundamental foundations laid, right? And so there are three I want to share with you. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that we need to remember is that everything belongs to God, including our life. So Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, meaning everything. The world and those who dwell therein, meaning us, humanity. So everything in the world, including humanity, including our lives, are the Lord's. Everything is his. For a short time in his story, he allows us to steward some of his creation. But everything is his. That's our first foundation we need to know. Because if we come into thinking about generosity, thinking the money I have is mine, the house I have is mine, the car I have is mine, we're already not seeing biblically how God sees money and generosity. Everything is his. And for a short time, he lets us steward some of his creation. Our definition of generosity is rooted in God himself. His character, his nature, his actions. God's generosity is the previous and static reality for which all other generosity exists. He led the way. He was generous first. And as we're called into life with him, he calls us to be like himself. And so that's our second foundation is that God himself is generous. Romans 8.32, our second foundation for talking about generosity, is God is generous. Romans 8 said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God is a giver. He is generous. He leads with generosity and calls us to mimic himself. He does not call us to do anything he hasn't already done. So as God is generous, he calls us as Christians to live a life of generosity. And that's our third foundation, that as disciples of Jesus, we are called to imitate the one who saved us. Ephesians 5 verse 1, Paul says, 
Therefore, right, therefore, the first four chapters of Ephesians, him stating all God has done, all of his glory, his majesty, and who that makes us as beloved children, holy, blameless sons and daughters, called for a purpose. Because of all of that, be imitators of God as beloved children. So our three foundations for talking about generosity itself is that everything belongs to God first. Second, God is generous. And third, what he calls us into as believers is to be like him, to mimic and imitate his character, nature, and that includes being generous. See, when we're generous, it proclaims the character of God to this world. It says something different about the God we serve and the God we believe. I was talking to somebody uh, this week who was recently in Nepal, who we were talking about touching Nepal a little bit early, who's recently in Nepal, and he was talking to me about uh, kind of the religious systems and orders. And if you guys are familiar with uh, a lot of parts of those worlds, uh, one of the primary religions is Hinduism, which is built on a caste system, a literal worth and value system of humans. And so if you're born into poor or poverty or kind of uh, grief-stricken families, that is your lot in life and that's what you deserve and nobody should help you because they're not helping your development as a person in that caste system if they help you they're just enabling your life there is a worth and a value associated with certain types of people in that particular religion that says if you were born into this family if you're born into these circumstances born in this way or whatever that's what you have to deal with That's what you're worth. That's the value that you have to bring to the table. Now, as people are getting saved in Nepal, as churches are starting up, they're being generous. They're taking care of the the people with leprosy, the poor, the orphans. And that is coming into stark contrast with the cultural norm of Nepal. It's incredible. Their generosity is proclaiming that they worship a different kind of God than people are used to. Their generosity says something about the God they serve. Now, we may not kind of have Hinduism at large as a national religion or anything like that. We may not have formalized caste systems or structures here in America. But as we are generous with our money, it proclaims something about what we believe. Why would you give that money away when you could buy yourself a nicer car? Why would you support a kid through Compassion International when you can, like, drink more coffee during the week, right? Or you can, like, add the HBO package to your cable. Or you can get just a little bit faster internet speeds if you just take that 30 bucks a month and get better internet at your house. <coughs> like, why, why would you be generous? And we answered that question last week. We're generous because God is generous. And we have faith in him because he's already been faithful. And he calls us to mimic himself. This is a really long quote, so I'm just going to read it. But Matt Chandler over at the Village Church, incredible dude, says about generosity, when we see the cross as the standard of God's generosity, we understand that our giving as well should be marked by liberality, love, and sacrifice. When we understand that God is happy in his giving, we too become eager and joyful in ours. When we trust God to provide perfectly for all our needs, we are set free from fear and are glad to give for the good of another, even if it means giving to our own hurt. When we understand that Jesus entered into poverty of the human condition on our behalf, 
Our hearts are gripped with love and compassion for the poor. We become willing to forsake the comfort and entitlement of our circumstance and to meet them where they are. When we understand that being a child of God means being part of a family of believers, we are happy to care for brothers and sisters in need. The gospel makes us a people of joyful, willing sacrifice. So good. When we understand that God has been sending his church on mission for the last 2,000 years for the sake of himself, we humbly and joyfully join him in that work. When we understand the gospel, we are no longer consumed with the world's empty treasures and comforts, man's approval, or our love of self. We give our joyful, humble, compassionate hearts that mirrors the generous heart of the Father. Something changes in us when we realize the truth of the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, but those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That as believers, as disciples of this Christ, we no longer live for ourselves, but for the sake of him who saved us. And this moves us towards greater generosity, greater recognition of our role as stewards of things that God has given us, stewards of creation, not owners of creation. Stewards of our time, our abilities, and even our money, our spiritual gifts, our lives are not our own. They belong to God. And so what I want to do is I just want to look at Philippians chapter 4 momentarily. And just a little bit of background uh, at the church in Philippi. That was all an intro. Sorry, that was an unbelievably long intro to the text we're in today. But I wanted to make sure we're on the same page. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul is winding down his letter to a church he helped start. So in Acts chapter 16, with the conversion of Lydia in about AD 48 to 51, somewhere in there, Paul plants the church at Philippi. Ten years later from jail, he is writing back to the church he helped start. Okay, so this is like sort of Sherry and I having helped plant this church. We move on and 10 years later, we write back to you guys. These are some of the things that Paul's writing back to. And he at the very end is encouraging them. He's calling them to pray. He's exhorting them and and their different, um, the different acts of faith that they are walking in. And he says this in verse 14 of Philippians 4. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Right, so by the time Paul was writing this, it had been about 10 years 
And the Philippian church had helped fund his missionary journeys to plant other churches and encourage and help build up other pastors and planters. What we see from Acts chapter 16 to Philippians chapter 4, in that decade or so, the church in Philippi had gone from a receiving church, a, a church planted, a church trying to establish itself, a church growing, to a sending church, to one that gives generously and supports the work of church planting. They have gone from the church sent to the church sending. They've gone from being the new church themselves to, through generosity and faith, catalyzing other new churches. Paul says they've been generous from the beginning, supporting his ministry, and he commends them for that. He encourages them. Right? But what he does here is really important. He highlights that the ultimate fruit is not the money he's receiving, but the credit that is towards them. What it does for their heart. That the more they give, the more they grow in love, maturity, and worship of God. He says that their sacrifice, and it is a sacrifice to be generous, is one that pleases God and is part of their worship. Just as a side note, that's why we don't pass a bucket during service or whatever, but we make it available during communion, during our worship times, because being generous is a part of our worship, a sacrifice pleasing to God. And finally, he encourages them and reminds them that God ultimately provides. Now, this is a 10-year story of generosity for this church, so he must have been providing. So Paul's not telling them anything new. He's just saying, look at what God has done. And so honestly, for us as a church, planted a year ago, we can look back as we exiting this building, moving to a new time, a new place, seeing some big changes, we're able to look behind our shoulders and see all God has done in the last year. And so when I'm telling you that God has been incredibly faithful and generous to us as a church, I'm not giving you news, I'm just reminding you of our year. I'm just reminding you of what's already happened as a church. Very similarly, what Paul is doing here in Philippians, he's reminding them and encouraging them in their faithful, compassionate generosity. He says that God is always at work advancing his kingdom and his gospel, and generosity plays a huge part in that. And so right here, at the beginning of talking about Philippians chapter 4, at the beginning, honestly, with a few more weeks teaching on generosity, I want to ask you to prayerfully consider what this story of generosity looks like for you individually or as a family. Is it one of being sent out to the far reaches of this world? Right? Are you being equipped by the Lord to be a sent one to the far reaches of the world or to your neighborhood or anywhere in between? Is your story one of great ability to support those who are being sent? To contribute greatly? Has the Lord blessed you so you can be a blessing? Is it to train men and women to, to go out on their grand gospel adventure, whatever God has for them? Has the Lord equipped you to train other people for this? Ultimately, how has the Lord equipped and shaped your life up to this point this morning? What is he doing in you? What are the passions that he's birthing in you? What are the exciting gospel adventures he might have for you over the coming years? To be a sent one and a sender. God is always at work moving his mission forward, and we are part of that going and sending. Right? God chooses to use his people 
to demonstrate who he is to the rest of the world. He doesn't have to, right? But in 1 Corinthians, Paul calls us all indispensable to the mission and ministry of God. God is God. He can do whatever he wants, and yet he chooses to use his church for the last 2,000 years to advance his kingdom. It's not just like superstar, rock star evangelists or crazy, amazing missionary organizations. Those things are great, and honestly, they come and go. But how God has consistently moved his kingdom and mission forward is through the local church for 2,000 years. From a few hundred people praying in an upper room to, I don't know, roughly a billion people around the world. That's insanity. God has used the generosity of his people to make that happen. A lot of Paul's writings, in fact, are about money. Requesting it from one church, sending it to another, shuffling it around, making sure that every church and the believers that no one's in need and that new churches are being funded and missionaries are being sent out. Right, about using money, about thanking people for money, encouraging them for it. And what we learn from Paul's, his three missionary journeys and all the letters he's written back to the churches is that church planting requires resources. It does. It did in Paul's day 2,000 years ago. It does today in Southern California and America. It requires the generosity of his people. But we can look behind our shoulder at 2,000 years of generosity and see that from somewhere in the Middle East 2,000 years ago to Ventura, California, the people of God have been generous to make this happen. He called on the church at Philippi, and they responded in faith and generosity. They opened up their lives and gave to Paul's work to plant new churches. The reality of doing life and mission and ministry is that it costs money. And God uses his people to fund his initiatives. There's a great Hudson Taylor quote. I totally forget it. Kev, I wonder if you'd remember, but it says, God's, God's work then, God's way never lacks his supply. There you go. Thank you. Hudson Taylor is a great missionary to China and other parts of the world. God's work to God's way will never lack his supply. It's incredible. God will sustain his church. He will send people out. God does not have a money problem. <laughs> God does not have a money problem. Okay, so for us, as we look at this Philippians 4 passage, honestly, what's happening here is this may be a glimpse into our future, right? Because Paul starts the church in Acts 16 and about 40, AD 48 through 51, somewhere in there. He writes back 10 years later to this church. And so maybe this is looking down our future a little bit more. And maybe it's giving us a glimpse and a hope of, of what kind of church we could be like. But what is interesting is they went somehow from a church planted to a church sending out resources and other people. And I was just thinking about this the other day. Like, what does it look like for us a year old to look down maybe 10 years what God would do with us. And what does that transition look like? And at the same time, I was also uh, thinking of, of my family, like my parents. Like there was a point in time when I stopped simply receiving only from my parents, right? So think about like, maybe it's a silly example. Think about Christmas time and think about young kids. Like my two-year-old Calvin is not going to go to Target and buy a present for mom or whatever. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Target, buy a present for mom and put Calvin's name on it, right? He's going to walk it over to her. It's going to be cute. It's going to be amazing, right? That's how that's going to go down. So there's a season in life in which like generosity is not really part of my kids' lives. But the things we do as parents is we teach generosity to our kids, 
And so when we go to a birthday party for someone, for some friend of our kids or something, you know, we put, okay, from Calvin. Did he go to the store and buy that present? Did he? Okay, no, absolutely not. But what are we doing as parents? We're setting this framework to say, no, you're going to practice giving, even if it's with my gift or my money or whatever. You're going to practice being generous. That's a little bit uh, at the moment we're like as a church right now. So we're not like financially self-sustaining. We're, we're being sustained off the generosity of two other churches, Anthem Camarillo and Thousand Oaks, but we still practice generosity. We are still giving away 10% of anything that comes in to local generosity. We're still going to participate and celebrate generosity, call you guys to give big and be a part of that story, to fund church planners, local and abroad, to fund Zoe, to fund foster care initiatives here in Ventura County. Now, could we put that money to use to be more self-sustaining? Sure, we absolutely could. But we're going to practice being generous with someone else's money. <coughs> That's what we get to do as a new church. That's what we're breeding into ourselves early on, is that we will be a generous church. Even if it hurts us, even if it's not our money right now, we will be a generous church. What I desperately want to happen this fall Honestly, and hear me, guys, I don't want this in your mind to be my thing, to be Kevin's thing, to be something Anthem Thousand Oaks does. I want this to be our thing. We're taking four weeks to teach on generosity from the Bible because I want you guys to know this is our story as a church. It's not just theirs. In the end of Acts chapter 20, in the beginning of chapter 1, so Luke the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke also writes the book of Acts. And so what happens in Acts chapter 20 and 21, Luke goes from reporting on events of this new church to joining the story. At the end of Acts chapter 20, Paul is praying with the Ephesian elders. He's leaving them to go on another missionary journey. He's getting on a boat, and what happens in that moment is Luke goes from being a reporter and talking to first-hand witnesses and seeing what Paul is doing to getting on the boat with Paul. So when we talk about that we're an all-hands-on-deck church, that's where we get that from. That there has to be a moment in our story as a church and your story where you get on the boat. This is what life a part of Anthem looks like. We are a generous, generous church. We are not generous by default in our culture, so we have to train ourselves to be generous and to imitate God as beloved children. And so, that's why I can say, celebrate generosity. Give. Give big. It doesn't benefit us directly. It's going to be going out. In fact, that's a, that's a week of operational expenses lost. God always graciously provides for us, but we're doing that in faith. Not having the surplus ready in our bank account to cover paychecks and rent and all the different things that we need to do. We give and give big trusting that God will provide. And honestly, if you have not started giving as a part of your regular generosity and worship, this is a great moment to start. It is a great moment to get on the boat and to know that 100% of that money is not going to benefit us. To go to our operational expenses, salaries or whatever, is going to benefit some incredible compassion, justice, and church planning initiatives here and globally. The money goes out. It is a great moment to try out generosity. Now, if you've been with us for a few years, this is all like recap and redundant for you, but I just 
desperately want you guys to know what kind of church we are and what kind of church we're growing into and the kind of family of churches that we're a part of. This just isn't for people who've been around a long time. This is for each and every person in this room. There's some questions worth asking when we read a story like Philippians chapter 4, when we think about that moment in Luke's journey from Acts chapter 20 to 21 where he gets on the boat. The question is, what keeps us from something like that? What keeps us from being generous, from jumping on the boat? What keeps us from going or sending other people? I can't answer that for you guys, but it's a question for yourself. What keeps us from being generous? At the end of Paul's first letter to Timothy, who became the pastor and kind of overseer of all the churches in Ephesus after Paul left, he's given some final thoughts at the very end in chapter 6. And he talks a little bit about money at the very end. And he says at the end of chapter uh, 6 in 1 Timothy, as for the rich in this present age, and kind of in parentheses, as we read this and as we look to Paul's writings to churches, that's us. We're the rich in this present age. Okay? Just want that to be really clear. We are the rich in this present age. I can say that because at least 80% of humanity lives on less than $10 a day. Currently. More than a billion, or about 15% of people on this planet, continue to live on less than $1.25 a day. So if you live on more than $10 a day, you are in the top 20% in terms of global wealth. If you make minimum wage in California, which is 10 bucks an hour, and you're single, that comes to about $19,200 a year which means globally you are in the richest 8.2% of the world's population. You're in the top 10%, guys, making minimum wage here in California. It may not feel like it, but you are. Your income is more than 13 times the global average, which is crazy. If you are an average family, right, making $53,657 a year, which is the median income for an average family of four in America, In 2015, globally, you are in the richest 7.9% of the world's population. And your income is more than 14 times the global average. So, of course, there's like culture, there's cost of living, right? There's economics, there's all that. I get it. That's just for a little perspective that when Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, the rich in this present age, from a global perspective, that is you and I. If we got 100 bucks to our name and a house, a place to sleep, some sort of shelter, some sort of food sustenance, you and I are in the richest 10% of the world. And he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Once again, Paul talking about money, talking about this posture of generosity. Not that we would get more money back in return, but that we would figure out what life is truly about. In Philippians 4, Paul says, I don't seek the fruit necessarily, but I seek what it does for your heart and soul. 
In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, I'm not seeking the money. I'm not compelling you to to give more money for my sake. I'm doing it so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. To abandon the distractions of this world. To see what life is truly like. That inevitably leads us to ask, are we going to trust God or trust money? Jesus says, you can't do both. We have to trust God to provide and realize that everything is the world's. He's generous. We're called to imitate him and be stewards of his creation for a short time. Either that is the camp we fall in or we say, no, I trust myself or I trust God more or I trust myself or I trust money more than I trust God. I don't see him as ruler over everything. Right? I don't see myself as a steward. Rather, I see myself as an owner. I don't need to imitate a God that I don't really trust or believe holds the world in his hands. And that is a perfectly fair worldview if you will consistently line up across the column. So either we believe the Lord is good, that everything is his, that he's generous, or we don't. If we do, we mimic his generosity in faith. If we don't, we don't. And that's simply following a worldview. But what I might assume is that we typically don't start at the top and see, is the world the Lord's? We don't start there. We start down further at the end. What am I doing with my money? And so an opportunity to be self-introspective is to start with, where does my money go? Follow the worldview up. Am I striving, trying to be generous with whatever meager funds the Lord has given me? Then I'm seeing myself as an imitator of God, as a beloved child. Then I'm seeing that he is generous. And I'm imitating just the one who's called me to be generous. And he was generous in his gospel. He saved me, so I'm going to imitate him. And yeah, everything is his. And he can do whatever he wants with it. And instead, he chooses to be generous with it. Or we go the other route and say, no, I'm not trying to be generous. Now, that may be a conscious or an accidental situation, right? So there's grace in this journey for sure. But follow that line of logic up. If we're hoarding, right, if we don't have the, the, the light eye like Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. If we have a light eye versus a dark eye, right? If we don't, if our posture is to hold back, to hoard, right, with our time, with our resources, with our talents, with the things God has equipped us with, then we follow that up the chain. We say, I'm not really supposed to imitate God, or I don't believe that he is generous, or I don't believe he really holds the world. First of all, this is not like a flip-the-switch overnight decision. It's simply a barometer to see what you actually believe about God. Randy Alcorn, a great author who writes a ton about money and generosity, has a couple of great books I would love to recommend to you guys. He says, what we do with our money proclaims what kingdom we're a part of. So my last five minutes, he boiled it down to one simple sentence. What we do with our money proclaims what kingdom we're a part of. So my question for you guys, in light of 1 Timothy 6, Philippians 4, this gospel foundation, all of these things, is what would it look like to be a part of God's kingdom? And maybe some of you in this room are already fully striving and working to to work out what generosity looks like in your life. And to that, take the encouragement from Philippians 4. Well done. Keep going. You're funding gospel initiatives. Thank you. Amen. Let's keep pressing forward. 
For those of you who aren't participating yet in that facet of the faith, don't hear guilt, shame, condemnation. That's where we started. That's not what we're talking about here. Hear it as an invitation into what life truly is about, like Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. Here it is an invitation to participate in the story and the mission of God. Here it is an invitation to see what God has done over the last 2,000 years and say, I want a piece of that. I want to participate in what God's doing. I know my 80, 90, 100 years on this earth are a blip on the radar, but while I'm here, I want to contribute, I want to participate, and I want to engage in God's story. That's what this is. It's not about condemnation. It's not about guilt. And we are proclaiming this really boldly, leading to you guys to give to a day where we do not directly benefit from anything that comes in. Like, I want to make sure that is absolutely clear. This is a moment for us to participate in what God is doing locally and around the world in hopes that it starts to become more regular for us. Right? This is a day that is important to us as a family of churches. We give it all away, but we also hope it becomes a regular part of your life. Like Paul says in Philippians 4, not that we would receive the fruit necessarily, but we could see the fruit and the credit to it in your life. God is not dependent on you, but he wants to use you. And it's for your benefit. That's what verse 17 says. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I can stand up here and boldly say that because I don't get the credit. I don't get the gift. We don't get the fruit. We as a church have to trust in faith that God will provide for us and our needs. Not that I seek the gift, but I want the fruit that will come in your life by living a generous life. I want that. I want to see it in each and every one of your families. I want to see it together for us as a church. Paul says that our generosity is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. It's not only a fragrant offering, but it's how God has decided to move his church and his mission and his kingdom forward. I want us to have a piece of that. I do, as a church. I don't want to be a church that exists for ourselves. That's boring, guys. It really is. I've been a part of churches like that. It's dull. I want to be a part of a church that is part of God's mission moving forward. I do. I want that for each one of you. I want it for myself. I want to grow in my family's generosity this year alongside with you guys. I want this as a church. So I'm going to end and just leave you with, uh, with Paul's encouragement at the very end of Philippians chapter 4. He says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. I can confidently stand here in this posture and say, we're taken care of as a church. We are. I'm taken care of as a man. I'm able to take care of my family. Like as a church, we're able to exist and have mission here in Ventura. We've received full payment and more. We are well supplied Paul says, my God will supply every need of yours. We can trust him to be faithful according to his riches, which are way better than our riches. 
in the glory in Christ Jesus, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever.